0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Bobby and Jens. My name is Bobby Julik and on the other side of the Atlantic in Berlin is my old best buddy, Jens Vogt. Jens, how's it going?
1: Pretty good, my friend. I had a bike tour with my wife together. The rest of the day I was more or less locked up in uh, homeschooling the kids because we are still in lockdown, heading into our fifth month of lockdown in Germany. So homeschooling all day long, but I'm doing great.
0: Yeah, your definition of great and mine definition of great is a little bit different if you've been in lockdown for for five months. But, you know, that's the Yenzi attitude, the can-do, uh, will-do attitude. Thanks to everyone for their feedback and questions that we've received. And... Um, we picked one out, which I, I actually really liked. I just wanted to ask Yenzi this. So we got the question from Matt Bowler, who got in contact with us on Twitter, at Bobby and Jens, for all of you that are curious about our Twitter handle. His question is, I'm curious how it differs between sprinters and climbers in retirement. Is there a regression to the mean And climbers become decent sprinters and sprinters focus less on sprinting and thus become better climbers. Jens, what's your take?
1: Well, if I talk about my retirement, I was more like an all rounder and I did not in capital letters, not try to become better at anything. I was retired and I just didn't want to hurt. I made two rules with myself, never hurt yourself anymore. And never ride in the rain anymore of course i've broken both rules but retirement really after a long career people just don't want to suffer and improve and look at the watts and power output anymore we just ride along enjoy company have social rights with our friends but i don't think too many retired pros actually train really hard still
0: yeah matt you got to remember that we retired for a reason and i think the best way to get over being a super competitive cyclist a great sprinter or a great climber is just to get fat just get fat don't train get fat um you know i'd say six months maybe a year but then you have to switch it over so you have to let that competition go because now you're too fat to sprint you're too fat to climb um then you start to get fit again and you're just gonna enjoy the the ride you're not gonna worry about the sprinting and the climbing anymore you're just gonna do it for fun so two different answers there two different answers hey yenzi today we have the one and only taylor finney on the pod he's in spain with his girlfriend, Kasha Niwadoma, who we all know is a very successful athlete herself. So thanks to both of them for allowing us to, to catch up with them. It's gonna be a great interview. Taylor, welcome to Bobby and Jens.
2: What's up, guys? Happy to be here.
0: I've actually known Taylor since he was a little bump in his mom's tummy back in 1990. My dad had a bike race in my hometown of Glenwood Springs, Colorado called the Tour of the Alpine Banks. And before the race, Connie was there. Um, and uh, obviously, she had a little baby Taylor uh, in her tummy. So I had met Connie and Davis Finney it's 1986, I was one of the, I went to the first ever Davis Finney, Connie Carpenter, Finney camp in Copper Mountain, Colorado. I was 14 years old and that's where I got to meet Davis and Connie for the first time who were my my um, heroes from the 1984 Olympics. Uh, Connie was a gold medalist, uh, Davis was a bronze medalist. And they just kind of looked after me a little bit when I was young, living in Colorado. I was in, on, the, on the western slope. They were on the eastern slope of Colorado, and we our paths would cross. And then fast forward, you know, a couple a decade or so later, and um, I'm at the top of, I don't know where it was. Maybe it was Tour of Italy or something like that. And I meet Taylor Finney for the first time. I mean, I'd heard about him, I'd read about him. But um, that was that was kind of the beginning for me. So um, yeah, Taylor, again, welcome to our show. And um, I just really want to kind of know, you know, you were a son of cycling royalty, and you must have had an amazing upbringing. Give us and our listeners a little idea of what it was like for you growing up prior to getting into cycling.
2: Um, well, to compress 15 years of life into a short (laughs) answer, um, I grew up pretty much wanting to be an athlete because that's, that's all we knew in the family. That's what I saw my parents doing. That's what I saw people celebrating my parents for, and as a kid, um, you know, you follow what your parents are doing, what your role models are doing. So um, I wanted to play soccer. I wanted to be like Ronaldo. I don't know if you remember Ronaldo from the Brazilian team, like 1998 uh, with the gap tooth. Uh, I really wanted to be the gap tooth Ronaldo. And then uh, we moved to Italy and I sort of quickly realized I was 12 when we moved there, but I was quickly I quickly realized that I was not going to be Ronaldo playing with all the Italians Um, because, you know, you can be like pretty good in the Boulder, Colorado uh, youth 10 to 11 age group. But then once you go to Italy and you're a 12 year old amongst thousands of just amazing soccer players, you're like, okay, well, maybe this isn't going to work. Still had some fun, made a lot of friends there. Um, And then eventually found cycling after uh, just riding with my dad. Um, But I grew up mountain biking primarily. I really didn't like road cycling when I was younger. I just found it very boring. And I wanted to do jumps and uh, I would always hurt myself though. That was kind of my, seems like it's been sort of a narrative. (laughs) But uh that's, um, yeah, the, very active, very active childhood.
0: And how long did you live in Italy for? I know you speak beautiful Italian, but you moved there when you were 12. and Beautiful
2: Italian. <laughs>
0: Molto bene. <laughs> uh,
2: we lived there for three years. We moved there when I was 12. We moved in 2002 after it was sort of a combination of things, so uh, my dad... My dad was diagnosed with Parkinson's 2001. The same year his dad died and then 9/11 happened. And it was just kind of I think it was like a little bit crazy for for my parents to to deal with the energy being in the US and also being in Boulder, which is a community where everybody kind of knows them and then you know, how, asking them about the diagnosis and all of this. So uh, they, I think they wanted to escape. So went to Italy, and originally we were just going to live in Italy for one year, but it uh, took one year to get all of the legal documents and everything together and, and even feel comfortable in our house. So uh, we stayed for two more years after that. And um, my sister and I went to a quote-unquote international school, which was all Italian kids, essentially there was just an, an, extra emphasis on learning English. Um, so maybe 30% of the classes were in English, but otherwise it was, it was in Italian. So like seventh grade, my first year there, I didn't, I re, I didn't really go, I went to school, but I wasn't, you know, I didn't, wasn't learning anything because I couldn't understand what anyone was saying. So they would, call on I mean, like, if you can imagine the, like the pang of anxiety that, that you would get as a child, just being 12 and like you're jumping, diving headfirst into puberty. And then at the same time, you're sitting in a classroom with a group of kids and you don't understand what they're saying. And then your like scary Italian history teacher calls you out and it's like, what do you think about this? And you're like, I'm not paying attention. <laughs> because I can't understand what you're saying. So, um, yeah, that was my first year. Very anxious, very, like, stressful time as a kid, but something I'm very thankful for now because I speak Italian and that's helped me to learn Spanish now. And so also Italian is kind of like the language of the Peloton, it seems like, (laughs) Other, other than English.
0: I know for the curse words it is. That's pretty much the only Italian I know is that they have really good curse words. So you're cruising around on on your mountain bike, you know, hitting the jumps, getting hurt. And the first time I really realized, "Oh my gosh, Taylor's on his bike," was when you were on the velodrome. When did you when did you trans, you know, transfer from the dirt on to, into, into track racing? Was that when you were still over there in Italy or when you moved back to the U S?
2: No, I didn't. Uh, I really only mountain biked when I was younger. Uh, I was also really into freestyle skiing. Uh, but again, I kept hurting myself. And, um, so when we were in Italy, um, we just had road bikes and then I would go, I used to love doing this loop with my dad where we would climb up and then we would do this, this pretty fun downhill and that was always really fun for us because he was like a criterium guy and he loved, you know, we, I spent my being at bike camp, um, you know, there's all these skills and drills things. So I spent my whole childhood doing like cornering clinics. And um, so going downhill was always, was always very fun for me. So we would, uh, yeah, just, I would go out riding with my dad and it was very special. In Italy, you know, it's you going through like the the olive fields and uh, you got those cool cypress trees and it just like everything smells nice. So that was like, that was just my first entry. I started racing road and then to get to the track, the track really only came up because I wanted to go to the Olympics and I was still in high school. And the, this is when flat, this is like flash forward and when I'm 17 and I'm a senior in high school and I won the junior world championships for the time trial, which was in Aguas Calientes, Mexico. And then from that day, it was sort of like the plan was hatched, like how to get Taylor to the Olympics, um, mind you. Most of this was masterminded by my parents and like USA cycling. Because um, I'm 17, like, I don't give a shit, you know, I mean, I want to go to the Olympics, but I'm also like, I would also like to lose my virginity, you know? So, <laughs> so it's like, ah, oh, one or the other. Um, ended up doing both in that year. So that was a great success. But, um, <laughs> the uh yeah the track was really a way for me to to try to make it to beijing in 2008 and uh we did a big world tour going to all the world cups and then it turned out like oh wow i'm actually you know relatively good at this four minute race the individual pursuit and um so then then i was a track cyclist like oh within a couple months. And once they took that event out of the Olympic program, they took the individual pursuit out of the Olympic program in 2009. Uh, once, once that happened, I just went straight all road all the time, because that's where, that's where people were gonna, you know, pay me
1: as a 19 year old to ride my bike. So Taylor, um, it looks like out of your entire family, only your younger sister didn't pick cycling as a sport. How did that happen? She's a cross-country skier, correct?
2: Uh, yeah, she she thought about doing some track cycling at one point. Um, she's she's a built more like my dad in the terms of like she's quite strong. Uh, my dad is is shorter and like he never works out his upper body but he's somehow just like ripped he's got these big biceps and these pecs and um so my sister is is also like shorter and like stronger and i think she also felt like if she didn't make it to the olympics like she would somehow be a failure of the family uh but she was also incredibly smart And so I always, as her older brother, I always encouraged her to stay in academics and go to a nice college and do something with her brain instead of doing something with her body. And uh, she she did, she did the, she sort of toyed with the the European circuit um, with the, with the U.S. ski team, but... I mean, those guys don't, don't get paid anything, and it's just like you're you barely scraping by just to pursue this, just to pursue this dream where you know thirty seven Norwegian amateurs are are better than you probably will ever be, you know. So it's um so yeah, she she actually quit uh, Nordic skiing at the same time that I quit cycling, which was kind of cool for both of us. And she rides, actually, all the time, but she just never never really raced. I think it was a bit intimidating, probably.
0: So in in 2008, you were on the track. And I want to get to 2012 uh, and talk a little bit about that Olympics, because Olympics seems to be a little bit of a developing theme here. But, you know, you were this junior wonderkind. You won paris Bay Espoir. You know, you... You won the Tour de la B2B overall, which uh, I must say is, you know, know, a feather. Yeah, yeah. I was totally stoked when you won that. And I think we've had a couple other Americans have won that since since then. But, um, you know, you just obviously had the ability to be great at time trials. And in Short short time trials. But I mean, you know you won the under 23 worlds and I'm sorry, the under 23 nationals and world championship in, in 2010,
2: the elite, elite
0: national championships, elite national championships. Yes. (laughs) And you turned pro in August and immediately won both time trials in the tour of Utah and then went to the tour of Avenir and won that time trial. I mean, we're all like, Oh my gosh. Like, this, this is going to be amazing. He can ride on the cobbles. He can, you know, be a time trialist, win all the, you know, prologues. Who's, and who's we? You, Who are we? <laughs> I, I mean, the American, your fans, Taylor Finney's fans, the yeah, people yeah. that loved watching you grow up. and The future of
2: cycling is now.
0: And, you know, you get to the Olympics in 2012. Um, you know, you, you got, you, you went to the Giro. You won the the opening time trial and took pink. And then um, not many people get to say that. I don't know how many Americans have taken pink in in, in the Giro. Uh, maybe Christian Vaneveld, yourself, uh, Andy, of course. But uh, pretty big thing. Going into the Olympics, you know, now there's no individual pursuit. So you're there for the time trial and the road race. And you wind up getting fourth in both of them, which was an amazing result. But did you, did you feel like... You know, I mean, fourth place in the Olympics is pretty tough, but were you happy with that result or was it kind of like, man, I I did all this training and, you know, just came up a little bit short? Yeah. I mean, I
2: definitely cried after the road race, you know, when you're sprinting for the bronze medal and then you, it's like right there, you know, when it's right in front of your hands, but then you can't grab it. So I shed a tear, but then going into the time trial, I was looking at the start list and it was like, well, Cancellara was out because he crashed in the road race or he was going to do it, but he was, I don't know. He was injured. But then you had like Wiggins had just won the tour and Froome was there and Tony Martin. And then I'm sort of doing the math in my head and I'm like, oh I'm going to get fourth again. Um, but actually, when I was a kid, I would, I don't know if I've completely fabricated this memory, but, uh, when I was a kid, I would watching the Olympics. I would always try to pay attention to who got forced, like to those, that person's name, because I always felt bad for those people. Um, cause they're like so close, but they leave with no hardware, you know? And, uh, so yeah, I was one of those people. And I gotta say, it's still cool. And they don't even make those medals out of real, uh, real gold or real silver or real, blo- real bronze. So the whole thing is
0: <laughs> No. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a- that's actually um, not correct. Obviously the gold medal is not made of gold and the bronze metal is not made of bronze. Made of but I've been, told, I've been told that the silver metal is, if you melt it down, is the one that's the most valuable over the gold and over the bronze because it has some silver in it, but.
2: If you provide me with some sources, then I will believe you. But I could also say, yeah. you know, I've heard, <laughs> and then literally say anything.
1: So, Taylor, um, after the Olympics, I if I remember correctly, you also finished fourth at the World Championship time trial, correct? Second. Second. So,
0: yeah. take that, Jensi. Um, yes, sorry. Take that. He took some hardware home. He took some hardware <laughs> home. So, don't be don't be jumping on my boy here.
1: Tyler, I, I, I watched it all. And I almost felt like a little heartbroken for you. Because like you said, all the hard work, you were so close. Yet, I believe those years or those weeks was where you were the strongest in your entire career. Don't you think so? Like in terms of pure performance, power output, mental strength, focusing, being right and ready at that point. I mean, you know, like in a month's time, second at the worlds, twice fourth at the Olympics. I believe you were incredibly strong in that period of time. Wouldn't you think so, or would you agree that that was where you were the strongest in your entire career, or did you actually have better or stronger moments?
2: Mm, yeah, I, I definitely agree. I think from a, from a results standpoint, yes. Um, I think there was that, that summer of 2012 and then the beginning of 2014, um, right before I broke my leg were sort of like the two, these two periods where I really felt like, um, in that time trial in Valkenberg in 2012, it was just like total flow that whole time trial. And it was almost 50 minutes long and I'm, you know, usually better at shorter ones, but I put in so much work that year going out into the Olympics and then having a little bit of like being happy with the Olympics, but still having like the pink Jersey of the Giro and then doing my first grand tour going into that, um, the end of the season, I definitely felt like I was super strong. And then, um, I think in 2014 I was, I was stronger but as as you know every year the level is going up in the group anyways uh, of everybody around you so um in comparison to everyone else i think uh
1: that that yes that was the time when i was probably the strongest now you already mentioned 2014 you won a stage in two of california um i believe I was trying to catch you in the break or oh, i was in the break with you for a while and you basically rode me off your wheel you were just so strong i was in my last year as a pro obviously not as strong as i wanted to be anymore and you i think you just killed me you just rode me off your wheel you were strong i remember that win it was fantastic to see you hold off the entire peloton chasing you That was pretty cool to see yeah that was
2: a dream come true for sure i mean when i would always fantasize about winning like that i always looked up to um guys like cancelara and i mean even you did that multiple times yenzi where you just go on these crazy solo breakaways uh that was always like the kind of the thing that inspired me the most at least from a sort of an entertainer's entertaining showman perspective because i was always interested in in that um, at the end of the day, like we're athletes, but you're also an entertainer. So uh, the way that you win the race is, uh, you know, you have to win the race first of all, but the way that you do it is, is uh, it can be either standard or like very entertaining. And I, I like, I like these sort of long shot, like Philippe Gilbert, like out of nowhere, sort of wins.
0: Well, not only did you win that in dramatic fashion, I think you absolutely aced the uh, the victory celebration. So uh, you definitely entertained us that day, that day. <laughs> but um, obviously, the inevitable is we're getting to two thousand and fourteen uh, when when you did have your your crash, everything was going very well. You won the the time trial and basically the next day um, you had this 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 terrible crash and you know don't want to dwell on the specific, specifics of it because everyone knows that it was it was quite serious but it was an absolute turning point in your career having known you before this and and afterwards what did you learn about yourself cuz i kind of looked at it as this kid has been basically a bike racer since birth and he's never really had the chance to be just a normal kid and all of a sudden you know you're injured you're going through months and even years of of rehab but what changed um, in your in your mind in your psyche in your spirit uh, after that crash because I saw a significant change but I'd be curious to see how how you look at it?
2: Yeah, I mean, I would say everything changed. Uh, it didn't change. It didn't change immediately. It changed over the course of a fair amount of time. But, you know, there was, there's always this moment that I'll remember where I'm sort of laying underneath the guardrail. And scared to look at my leg because of the peak that I took, I could see my leg, my foot off in this really weird, unnatural position. And I was like, okay, well, that's not something that I need to even look at. Uh, Cause I, I was feeling more pain than I really ever felt in my entire life. And it wasn't subsiding. It wasn't going away. And I was looking up in the sky and I just, I had this thought like okay is this it you know is this is did i just finish my career am i gonna have to go back to school now am i gonna have to go do something else and i think really having that thought was the opening for everything else because before i would have never had that thought i would have never opened myself up to the idea of like oh maybe you could do something else with your life my whole my whole life, like you said, at least my whole adult life since I was 17, since I went to the Olympics was like, okay, well, I'm going to try to win the world championships and I want to win a yellow Jersey at the Tour de France and I want to win Paris-Roubaix and I want to win this and I want to win that. And yeah, once I opened myself up to that question of like, well, actually, what if I need, what if I need to be happy with everything that I've achieved already? and what what would inspire me to continue to move forward in this world uh, and what makes me happy so yeah that whole recovery process was like the first time that i was um not surrounded by bike racing all the time and i wasn't was no longer in the bubble and was not checking cycling news anymore um i was still part of a team, but they really, they knew that I was going to be out for a while. So I I stayed in Boulder for almost a year and a half straight. And that was the longest time that I ever been in one place in in my, really in my whole life, maybe since I I was like 11. And um, being able to cultivate community, and actually see people for more than like two weeks and connect with people and then experiment with like different forms of expression. I mean, I remember when I rode my started riding my bike for the first time, it was felt amazing. Like I was like, wow, this vehicle is actually incredible. And it makes me feel really good. And I had a feeling that I'd never associated with cycling before because cycling was so much about performance it was so much about getting to it was so i was using the bike in order to become like a famous person or i was using the bike to in order to win this so that i could change my life and sign a bigger contract and then like pursue bigger goals uh i never i never realized that riding a bike is actually just awesome (laughs) and it makes you feel really good and it's actually great for your head it's great for your body um i was just really obsessed with like being uh being a very good athlete and then the yeah the accident just changed my perspective about about everything and then once i Once I opened my my mind up to, like, what else am I interested in? Then then I started really then it was like, how do I prioritize? You know, I really want to be doing this. I really would like to just be painting and drawing or making music um, or bikepacking or mountain biking. But like I'm supposed to be training right now. So then then I was trying to find the happy medium, but it's impossible. If you want to be a, if you want to be a professional athlete, you really that has to be it. You know, you have to have that as your top. You know, my actually my dad, when I was younger, he would tell me, um, well, he might get angry at me for saying this, but <laughs> he definitely told me one time, and maybe this was a quote that somebody told him. But he was like, you know, the bike has to be number one girlfriend or (laughs) partner, number two, everything else below that the bike while you're racing is number one. So I took that to heart when I was younger. But then at some point I was like, I mean, the bike can be up there, but I don't think it has to be like everything, especially because I want to. I want to do so many different things like i just started exploding with like different forms of creative expression and um if you try to suppress that then it just then it's then it's no bueno
0: spring is finally here if you're just getting back on the bike and worried you're not in race form don't worry active pass from outdoor has you covered Jens and I are both members and get to enjoy training plans, exclusive gear discounts, entry to cycling events, and much more, including access to premium content from other outdoor publications like Bellow News, Trail Runner, Yoga Journal, and Backpacker. And there's even more coming soon, including Peloton Magazine. All in all, it's $350 worth of value for just $99. But if you enter our special coupon code BOBBYYENS25 at checkout, you'll get another 25% off. Go to VeloNews.com forward slash ActivePass and enter Bobby BOBBYYENS25, 25, B-O-B-B-Y-J-E-N-S-25, 25, all one word and all lowercase at checkout to receive our special 25% discount. Now back to our chat with Taylor Finney. Well, listen, thank you for for giving us, you know, so much time about the past. But yeah, I want to know about the present and the future of Taylor Finney. I mean, you, you make music, you you're, you paint, you know, I, I know that you do a lot of meditation. You're obviously riding your mountain bike a lot. Um, yeah, just... Tell us a little bit about your your expression, the way that you're getting your crea- creative energy out these days. It used to be on the bicycle, and now it's with a paintbrush and, and a keyboard. Still on the bike. Um, Still
2: riding bikes.
0: And and uh, mountain biking, and with your buddies. And I saw today you were with some young kids, passing the, the knowledge on to the next generation. I mean, I'm, I'm so glad that you've been able to find the bike as something other than just a tool to... To, to win races because I mean, you can ride your bike forever, but like too many people, um, kind of just hang it up and never do it again. But yeah, let's tell us a little bit about what you're up to. Um, where are you? I, I mean, obviously you have stayed in Spain through the whole lockdown period, correct?
2: Yeah. So, uh, as the story goes, my girlfriend always makes fun of me because I say this all the time, but I, I came to Spain last year in March for- Three weeks. <laughs> for three weeks.
0: <laughs> Hi, Kasha.
2: And- um,
1: I'm still here.
0: You're like the house guest that never left or something or what?
2: <laughs> no, well, so we went into, we were, I was here for two weeks and then after two weeks, we went into, we went into lockdown. They closed the borders. So it was like all the all the American pros like Keel and and Alex House and Lawson Craddock, like everybody. It was like this mass exodus from Girona because it's like the borders are closing. We have to get out of here. We got to get back to America, you know. And then I'm like, well, my girlfriend's from Poland, so she can't come with me. And uh, I guess I'm just going to just like stay here and ride it out for however long this lasts. So. Now we've been here for a year. Um but honestly, uh, really, just in the last like month, months, two months, I feel like everything like that I could have ever dreamed of like as being my personal manifested dream is like starting to become real., uh, we just started this little junior and women's enduro team locally here so we'll we just have a couple I just like randomly met these kids Um, the first one that I met was 15 and then the the other ones are 17 and 17 and they're like two of them are super good like really really talented and um, I ride downhill and I love I love to shred and do jumps and I I like, I have fun with it and I go fast, but like these kids are amazing and, and it's really fun for me to follow them. So, uh, I just thought like, man, I had so much help when I was that age. Like I didn't have to do anything except for just, I didn't have to do anything. It was like, my dad would be like staying up late at night, like being, being my mechanic and putting like carbon wheels on my bike for like local races, you know? And, um, so yeah, I'm just going to like help these kids, uh, with things that they wouldn't normally have like money to pay for like physical therapy, uh, appointments and entry fees, licenses. we we went to a bike park a couple weeks ago and, um, we were doing these jumps that like, just blow my mind you know like 15 meter gap jumps like blah <laughs> talk about like straight adrenaline like injected into your neck uh, I, I love it um but otherwise so i got that's like my cycling component uh we also have two two local english uh girls who live in town who like to go fast downhill and we're gonna try to set them up with some Get them to some races and uh, just see if they see if they like it. Uh, got got Pac to send us some helmets and gonna get some Oakley glasses. Like I got hooked up with Oakley when I was sixteen or seventeen, and I remember that being like, I mean, the cream just creme de la creme. When you're like in high school and you get free Oakley glasses, you just die, you know um oh yeah so i'm trying to pass that spirit on uh trying to just because i we get so much stuff for free it's you take it for granted and then like i'm telling these kids like oh yeah we'll just get you some of this and get you some of that and they're like blows their mind so uh I, I love to be able to to help in that way and then uh i just finished my first mural project so I just painted a This giant wall, Um, it's five meters tall and maybe eight or nine meters wide. It took me 50 hours in total painting, like, wall time. Wow. To do the whole thing. Um, Completed it in a a moon cycle. (laughs) So I started on the last full moon and then I finished on this full moon, which just, like, felt felt right <laughs> um and it looks really cool i'm really excited about it and um i'm i i'm not getting paid for that i'm doing uh so it's at of it's at my physical therapist's office in her studio and we have a trade to where like the hours of time that i put into the mural go into physical therapy hours so i'm still working in a broken place relatively broken body from my various crashes and I get physical therapy like once or twice twice a week because I still like to thrash the body and um, so that feels like a really cool exchange you know I'm not like trying to get some figure of money for this I'm doing it so that I can receive it's like for my body it's for me which is uh 'm just different it feels good. And then the third well, there's many things but the other thing that I've been doing a lot is trail building and trail maintenance uh, which is like as a cyclist when it starts raining outside like as a road cyclist you're like oh the weather huh <laughs> It's so outside you know like it's raining like oh man. Now when it rains, I'm like a crazy person. I'm like putting on my my rain jacket and I'm like in the forest direct because it doesn't <laughs> rain here that often. So when it does rain, that's when the earth is like ready to be to be molded. It becomes like Play-Doh, like, cl- like, like putty. And so I'm just out there like shaping berms with my hands and just like throwing the pickaxe into the ground and just moving dirt around feels so good. I can't tell you how much I enjoy doing that.
1: Well, Taylor, it looked like you were taking care of some young kids there. What's their future family plans if we are allowed uh, (laughs) to talk about that? You can, of course, deny the answer. But we were just curious that, you know, maybe one day you settle down a little bit and think, Hey, how about like, you know?
2: Yeah, because how many have you pumped out any more kids?
1: And we uh, uh, <laughs> we still try to stay at six. That uh, keeps us incredibly busy, my friend. Believe me or not, that keeps us incredibly busy. And if I'm allowed to give one free advice, yeah, democracy maybe, yeah. within a family is highly overrated. Sometimes it just has to go put your shoes on just because daddy says so, and not have a democratic discussion about why. Yeah. Your kid should put the shoes on. No, sometimes just just do it because I tell you. sometimes yeah. it's what you need.
2: This sounds like Germ- German parenting.
1: Might be. <laughs> so yes, back to you, Taylor. What's the story? <laughs> here? What's the latest news about any uh, potential um, future children?
2: Well as you know, um, my girlfriend is a bike racer, so she's and she's younger than I am. So she's gonna be racing her bike. What until you, until you're like 38? <laughs> 40? 48. 45. Um, so we have some time. She's 20. A baby. She's 26. She keeps asking me to make her a baby, but um, she also trains too much uh, for that to happen. So fortunately, we're living in this really nice. Uh, gray area
0: <laughs> Good for wow. you Wow <laughs> you got it all figured out you got it all figured out one thing that I would like to touch on before we let you go Taylor is the the Davis Finney Foundation um have you guys had any recent you know fundraising efforts and you know how's your pop doing
2: Yeah I mean my dad's doing pretty well. I feel like they kind of lived. A sort of isolated life uh before this all happened and um, now they've been doing the same my mom really misses traveling um but the foundation itself is doing really well i mean i think you know that throughout this whole pandemic uh charitable organizations have been have been booming for the most part um they just finished uh my 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 coach before you, Bobby, Neil Henderson, uh, had organized this thing through the Suffer Fest, which made like $385,000 over a week, which was pretty wild. Wow. And um, we did a, earlier this year, right before I came over here, we did a, I painted a bike like very hastily in Boulder, and then we auctioned that off um, and ended up, raising like forty three thousand dollars for the bike, uh or well with the bike for the foundation. So
1: Taylor, thanks a million times for actually joining us today, giving us so much time and all your interesting points of view. I loved listening to you. I actually did love racing with you because you were so incredibly strong and you were one of the few riders, a little taller than me. So I actually if we ever Got in a break together. I would actually got a good draft of you because you're such a tall man. So, thanks for actually joining us. It was great to see you again and uh, talk to you again. I'm so glad you know that you're doing well now in your life after cycling. It's good to see. So, thanks again for joining us today.
2: Thanks a lot, guys. My pleasure. Anytime.
0: Okay, Yenzi, there was a lot of bike racing, a lot, a lot, a lot of bike racing. So, uh, we're here back again to the hashtag shut up legs award of the week first off before you give me your pick we got a tweet in from Sean Whitfield and he tweeted that Sep Kuss is my hashtag shut up leg rider of the week he goes for the win can't do it and then helps his teammate for GC that was a pretty impressive day that's for sure. I remember watching that on TV in the uh, the UAE tour. So, so that's from Sean. Sean, thank you very much for your feedback. And now, Yenzi,
1: my shutter blacks award this week it goes to Lotte Kopecky from Belgium of Team Liv Racing. She was twice in a breakaway, still got caught, managed to win the bunch sprint, and she won Le Samin de Dame just this weekend. It was a gutsy ride and all instinct. So she is my Shutterblex ride of the
0: week. Oh, good pick. Good pick. Classic season is here, right? We had a great opening weekend and it's clear from the start, you're going to have to have good teamwork. You're going to have to be patient and you're going to have to have really strong tactical ability because, man, racing has changed since you and I used to do it, Yenzi. There is so much going on. I mean, from... You know Tommy Pickcock, just bossing it on the front like a seasoned veteran in both the classics over the weekend. To you know the old, the older guy in the peloton, Heinrich Hausler, he turned back the clock a little bit. Was super competitive in both those races. You know we were sitting there watching him do cyclocross all winter, kind of questioning what he was what, what he was doing. Obviously that paid off some big dividends. But um, I have to say, um, my rider of the week and this is probably gonna happen many, many times this year, is Mateu van der Poel. The guy wins the first stage of the UAE Tour. One of the people in his entourage tests positive for COVID, so he has to go home. So he can't race until the UAE Tour is over. So that's why we didn't see him in Het Volk on Saturday. Then he decides, you know what? I missed some days of racing you know what, I'm going to make it a little harder on myself. I didn't, you know, race this week. So he attacks from 80K out. And the only guy that goes with him was my hashtag shut up leg rider of the week a week ago, Jonathan Navarrez. They catch the breakaway. They work together. They get almost to the line. And, you know, they were caught. But Matteu Vanderpool, hashtag shut up legs rider of the week
1: very good choice.
0: Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Huge thanks to Taylor Finney and Kasia Nuyadoma for joining us.
1: Thanks for listening. Please give us a five-star review and share us with your friends.
0: The show was a Velo News production in association with Shock Giraffe. The producer was Mark Payne, and this episode was edited by Kirk Warner.
1: Follow us on Twitter and Instagram, at Bobby and Jens, and share your cycling stories with us.